Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Welcome. My name is Caroline Moasasi, and I'm FACT's Roundtable podcast host. I'm honored to take on this role with FACT, as I'm also a passionate allergy and asthma advocate on the national and international level a parent of children with food allergies, and the founder of GratefulFoodie.com. Joining us is Dr. Brian Vickery, pediatric allergist immunologist. Dr. Vickery will update us about the current state of OIT and explain the new peanut allergy drug, Palforzia. Welcome, Dr. Vickery. We're so excited to have you on the show today and to learn more about OIT. Well, thanks for having me, Caroline. It's a great opportunity, and I appreciate the invitation. So I'm going to jump right in and just start with the basics. So can you explain what is OIT and how it works? So OIT is oral immunotherapy, which is sort of an emerging treatment for food allergy. It's actually an old idea. The initial reports of allergists using oral immunotherapy are over 100 years ago in the medical literature. But for most of the 20th century, it was not widely practiced and really didn't gain attraction until sort of the early 2000s when it became more and more available on a clinical basis and more and more intensely studied. From a big picture standpoint, the idea of OIT is to gradually expose food allergic patients to small amounts of the foods that they're allergic to, building the exposure up bit by bit over time to sort of change the immune response and create a change in the body so that the patient is less reactive to the food. And that's that's a change that we call desensitization. So it is a long-term treatment. It is not a cure, but it is a way to try to change the allergy from being exquisitely sensitive mechanism that reacts all the time to one that sort of calms down a little bit. So now are there any age limits or restrictions regarding who can participate in OIT? Is it for children only? Can adults do this? Teenagers? Yeah, so so these are good questions. I think we'll talk a little bit later on maybe about a new form of OIT that has been recently approved by the FDA. And there you have pretty specific population. It's important for listeners to know that there are clinics around the country and in fact around the world where OIT is practiced. And there's a lot of variation in the way those clinics operate. So some clinics may treat very young children in the preschool years. Some may not. Some may focus on just a few of the major allergens, say like peanut, maybe egg. Other clinics may use virtually any food in the practice of OIT. In general, I would say from a research standpoint, probably you know, upwards of 90% of the data published in the literature are on peanut. That's not to say that peanut is the only important food. It's sort of been the test case for studying OIT with the idea that the lessons we learn from peanut may apply to other foods, although I don't think that that's universally true. It's just been sort of the test case. And most of those studies have been in sort of school-age kids and maybe adolescents. We know comparatively little about 
babies, you know, infants and preschool kids, and we know comparatively less about adults. Most of the work has been in this four to 18-ish uh, age range. So now can you describe for listeners what a parent can expect in treatment, not only with doctor visits, but also at home every day? So I think that one of the key things for listeners to understand about OIT is that some of it happens in the office, but most of it happens at home. In fact, probably 98, 99% of the doses that are given in OIT happen at home. So anytime we introduce a patient to the treatment for the very first time, the very first few doses, that happens in the clinic. And then they're, if they tolerate that, they go home on a daily dose that's administered at home. And then they return to the clinic or the research unit periodically to have that dose adjusted, either up or down. If they're having trouble with the dose, we might actually go down. And that happens on average about once every two weeks or so. Parents need to understand that there are hours spent in the doctor's office. You know, these visits are long visits. They're almost like food challenges where you expect to be there for a period of time to take the doses and then a period of time afterwards to be observed at least you know a couple hours each time. And that's every couple of weeks for six months or more. So lots of time away from work and school attending these visits. And then in between that, every day there's a dose at home. And so there's an important shift required, I think, for families uh, who are considering OIT. And that is, number one, the thing that you've been sort of trained to avoid and that you've kind of re-engineered your life to avoid is now something that you're going to expose your child to every day. And so this sort of is this shift from this is a threat that we must avoid at all costs to this is a medicine that we have to take every day. You know, the, the other thing is that because of the way OIT works, have to turn into almost like amateur nurses because they have to assess every day, is their child well enough, ready enough to take a dose today? Because if they're sick, they shouldn't dose. And we can talk a little bit more about safety precautions and things. Make an assessment, is today a good day for a dose? Prepare the dose, administer the dose, see how well the dose is tolerated. If there are any symptoms, they need to address those symptoms. They might need to give a medication. They need, may need to decide which one or which combination of medications. Do we, do we call the office? Do we go to the emergency room? Do we call EMS? And then record the experience of giving that dose. And this happens day after day after day after day. And so, you know, the families that have done this have gotten, you know, really good at it. And it can be done. And it can be done well. There are thousands of, of families that have now kind of adopted these changes. But it's quite a set of changes from avoidance. You mentioned safety. So can you maybe dive a little deeper into what you mean by that? This is a key issue with, with OIT. The concept is that you're exposing the patient to the thing they're allergic to. And it's somewhat like we do with allergy shots. And we've done allergy shots for a really long time. If you're allergic to cat or pollen or whatever, we expose the immune system to small amounts. And we know that we've got ample evidence that that works well and changes the immune response. But similar to shots, when you expose people to the thing they're allergic to, they're going to have symptoms. And that's expected. Those symptoms in OIT, because you're swallowing the allergen, tend to involve the mouth, the throat, the stomach. Uh, you know, you have a lot of oral itching. You have a lot of discomfort in the throat. You have abdominal pain, sometimes nausea and vomiting. These are sort of some of the most common symptoms. They often are very mild, where they can pass without even treatment. Sometimes they require a little bit of antihistamine. And that's a pretty expected type of symptom burden. The abdominal symptoms can become so pronounced, they essentially require the, the child to stop the therapy. And typically, that, if that's going to happen, it usually happens in the first two or three months of the treatment. Not 
across the board, but as a general guideline, they can predominate early on and are the most common reason in studies for people to stop the treatment. One of the key issues with the abdominal symptoms is differentiating them from EOE or eosinophilic esophagitis, which is a kind of a, a different type of food allergy that has been found in patients undergoing OIT. And one of the big questions that researchers are struggling with is, did the treatment cause the EOE or was the EOE already there? We don't really know how common EOE is because most patients don't undergo the diagnostic procedure that's required to find it. But the symptoms look similar to the symptoms that you see in EOE. And typically, if it gets to that point, we just simply stop the treatment. And within a few days, patients are better. That is an important constellation of symptoms, the GI symptoms. And then the other one I would say would be the risk of a, of a bigger allergic reaction, a systemic allergic reaction that could be hives or difficulty breathing or anaphylaxis, the type of reaction that would require epinephrine. And in terms of frequency, I think in general, the range of patients having anaphylaxis during treatment, depending on the report that you read, is between 10 and 20% of participants will have anaphylaxis during the treatment. And similarly, 15 to 20% will have enough abdominal symptoms to actually stop the treatment. Many, many more than that will have mild abdominal symptoms that seem to either be manageable or ultimately go away. Thank you for going really deeper into safety. I think that's an area that for many of us, it's a little gray and unknown. But once we learn the challenges, then it makes it so much easier. I have so many friends that have had major success on OIT, but mm -hmm. I also know I've heard lots of people be very hesitant and very scared, but they haven't been able to hear this kind of information. So thank you so much for going into this part. Based on that, how would a parent know if their child is a good candidate for OIT? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I, I think this is a discussion that's best had with the provider, uh, obviously. But some things to think about are, does the child have the allergy that is in question? And that seems like a simple place to start, but we know that we kind of have a false positive problem with food allergy testing. And there are many folks who unfortunately are avoiding foods unnecessarily because of a test result. Now, some of those patients who test positive are actually going to be allergic, but many won't. We know that everybody that is truly allergic, meaning they've eaten the food, they've clearly had an allergic reaction to it, all those patients will test positive. But many patients will test positive who are not allergic. So negative tests are very helpful to exclude allergy, to rule it out. But a positive test by itself doesn't necessarily make you allergic. So for instance, if a patient has a reaction to one food, say milk, early on in life and gets tested to 30 other foods in the evaluation for that milk allergy, they may not be allergic to all the other foods they test positive to. We have this known false positive problem. So I think one thing to sort out right from the beginning is what are the true allergies, the restrictions that really need to be there, and, and where might we have just false positive that uh, requires further investigation and actually not OIT? Does, it's not something that needs to be avoided. That's an important first step. From there, where the diagnosis is known and clear, then I think one key consideration is what are the other allergic conditions that the child is dealing with or the patient is dealing with? Is there asthma? How bad is the asthma? How much medication does it take to control the asthma? Similarly for eczema, you know, some studies suggest even environmental allergies can affect the way OIT goes. So kind of taking all the other allergic conditions, which most food allergic kids have, they have more than one diagnosis, taking the, the totality of them all and seeing how well they're controlled. I mentioned EOE earlier. 
some kids with food allergy have EOE. And in general, EOE is considered disqualifying for OIT. If that's one of the things that your family is dealing with, in general, I think we need more more research about this. Most folks don't treat kids that already have EOE before starting OIT. Making sure the other conditions are pretty well optimized. The care of those other conditions is as good as it can possibly be. And then one of the other big considerations is just sort of maybe more of the, I'll call it like the softer or some of these social considerations beyond the the medical considerations. Can we as a family make the adjustments to our lifestyle that are going to be needed to do this kind of treatment? Can we the, the dosing procedure, like I talked about before, can we make visits every two weeks? Can we give all the doses at home? There are There are instructions about taking doses that I think we should talk about because that also relates to, you know, deciding if it's right for you. These are as important as the clinical considerations, I think, maybe even more important. Before we leave this topic, this sometimes comes up in terms of the other clinical qualifications. The severity of the reaction doesn't really matter. Current studies now don't really exclude people that have had even severe reactions. Those are generally not considered disqualifying. In fact, sometimes people with have it, who have had a scary, severe reaction may be really motivated to seek treatment. That it by itself doesn't disqualify them. There's no IgE level or skin prick test or anything like that would be considered too high. Some patients will test greater than 100 to a food. That does not mean that they don't qualify for OIT. We've never excluded a patient because their levels are too high. Thank you for sharing the conversation on the social part. And then also, that was a big question that people have is if they've had severe reactions before, can they do OIT? So I really appreciate you answering that question too. Yeah. So the early studies, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but the, the, the early studies for safety did have precautions or even exclusions around people who had had severe reactions for safety reasons. And that's obvious when you have sort of a, a new procedure, new technique, you want to be careful. It was shown that it was okay, that the safety profile was manageable. And so the the more recent studies, the big phase three studies did allow participants in who had had reaction histories that were quite severe, because those are the kind of patients who naturally might want to seek the protection that OIT could offer them. And so it's important to test it in those kinds of patients to make sure that it's acceptable before we sort of turn it loose on them, so to speak. So back to the social concerns with parents needing to go to these doctor's appointments, how frequent are those appointments? So each protocol is slightly different. And I think this is a key gap or a key research area that we need to to continue to work on to figure out what is the optimal regimen to get people through the updosing. Because you take people at the beginning who are obviously avoiding the food and are not exposing themselves to then put them on this sort of daily dose that starts with a tiny, tiny, tiny little amount, very small fraction of one peanut or one egg, and then build them up over a period of months to a dose that is an amount that's a sort of a real amount, one, two, four, eight peanuts, a whole egg, etc. There's no agreement on what the right maintenance dose should be, what the target is to build up to, nor how long it takes to get there. Every protocol is slightly different, but in general, you know, your listeners could expect some kind of requirement to visit the office at least once a month, typically a couple of times a month, you know, bi-weekly to get to that fan, that difference between tolerating none at the very beginning, and then like a whole serving at the end of the buildup. So it's a, it's a gradual process that plays out over a long period of time. A lot of it 
is, you know, came from early studies that just sort of estimated the most practical, feasible, best guess type of scenario. But I think one of the things that we really need to try to systematically understand with research is what is the best way to do this? It might be that keeping the doses low for a a while and going really slow and adjusting people's doses down if they start to have symptoms and just kind of leaving it just nice and quiet and slow at the beginning may be a better way to go. There's some data for some studies that suggest that that's the case. And again, that, that's not totally surprising. This is a food allergy, after all, we're talking about. The body reacts quite violently to small amounts, so we need to be careful. Thank you for that clarification. So also, do all allergists offer OIT, or can any of our listeners go see their pediatrician to receive OIT treatment? So the short answer is, this is a treatment that is available uh, only in the allergy office, and that's the way it should stay. Now, is that the case in every single county in the United States? The honest truth is, I don't know. There may be some areas that are perhaps a little bit more remote where you may have a a generalist who takes this up in an attempt to try to help patients. But for the most part, I would encourage your listeners to seek the care of not only a board-certified allergist, but one that has a lot of experience in food allergy in OIT. This is a bit like if you had to have a surgery on your back, you would want to have that done by somebody who does that procedure regularly. Not, not one that kind of does it only periodically. So it's really important to seek out that expertise. One of the big issues the field faces right now is there's been a lot of discussion over the last five years or so about, is OIT ready for prime time? At national meetings, there would be debates, pro and con, yes, no, yes, no. The fact of the matter is now OIT is only available on a pretty limited scale for any food besides peanut. And while we don't fully understand you know, how available it is and what are the practices that are offering it and what are their approaches to OIT, because not all of those groups are reporting their experience and it's hard to know exactly you know, how many folks are actually doing this and how they're doing it. But the best estimate is that there are probably several hundred allergists around the United States that are engaged in OIT right now. And the the estimate of the total number of allergists in the U.S. is probably about 5,000. Right now, it's a very small percentage of the overall number of practicing allergists, maybe one out of 10. And there are people who live in areas where nobody in a huge radius is offering this. And there's an access issue for sure. This is the gap that the regulatory approval process is attempting to address by making a product that is standardized and available to everyone where you have a characterized product with rigorous testing and insurance reimbursement and kind of training that comes with it so that theoretically any allergist anywhere could start to offer this treatment. And so I think you'll see those numbers and that access go up and up and up, at at least for peanut. Thank you for that guidance. And it also gives us a lot of hope to know that there's work out there trying to make this treatment more readily available. So that's very good news to hear. Earlier this year, Palforzia was approved for treatment use, but it also was released right before the pandemic. Can you help clarify what Palforzia is and what does that mean to our food allergy community? On the 31st of January, the uh, Food and Drug Administration issued an approval of a treatment that was indicated 
for the treatment of food allergy for the first time in its history. So this is a huge milestone for our community, for the patients, for families, for the scientists that have been working on this. As you point out, this almost completely coincided with the emergence of the virus. So the community has been investing all this time and effort in research to develop new treatments for food allergy over the last 10 to 15 years. And it culminated in this very first milestone approval. Right at the same time, everything got swamped by a pandemic that's completely unprecedented. And so it's been a sort of a strange time because we've all been sheltering in place and not going to clinics and only essential or urgent procedures have been happening. But I think as we look ahead to the second part of 2020, hopefully things will calm down a little bit and we can get back on track, so to speak, uh, and make these treatment programs available. What is Palforzia? Palforzia is the trade name for a peanut oral immunotherapy product that was studied in several large trials manufactured by a company in California. And basically, it is a biologic drug product that is manufactured from peanuts that are unmodified. So these are peanuts that are grown in the ground. It's an agricultural product. They're not genetically engineered. They're not purified or created with molecular technology or anything like that. It's a natural product that is transformed into a medicine. And in so doing, the amount of allergen in each dose is very, very tightly controlled. So an allergist knows exactly what they're giving and patient and a parent know exactly what they're getting. It's tested to be free of uh, bacteria and, and other contaminates, other food allergens. So it's pretty precisely measured and controlled, and it comes in a capsule. There are a couple of other ingredients inside the capsule that are mainly made just so that all the material comes out of the capsule when you open it, because the capsules are not intended to be swallowed. You, you take the capsule, you open it and sprinkle it into the vehicle food. Uh, that's an important part of OIT, and which I didn't mention earlier, actually. That's an important part of doing this is uh, most of the ways that OIT is administered, again, there's differences in each clinic, but most of them involve opening some sort of preparation and sprinkling it, mixing it into a vehicle food like yogurt, applesauce, pudding. In the case of Palforzia, it, this comes in a precisely measured capsule that's in a blister pack. It's in like, you can think of like a, a little cardboard wallet or folio that you open and each day has a little blister pack with a capsule you need to take for that day. So you just push it through the foil, you take the capsule, you open it, you sprinkle it into the yogurt or applesauce or pudding, you give the dose, you put the, the cardboard folio back in the refrigerator because it's designed to be refrigerated. The next day you pull it out, you do the same thing. And so it just makes it easy to do. It is now, again, FDA approved for the treatment of peanut allergy in kids and adolescents aged 4 to 17 in the United States. So I have a question for you. So when you open up the capsule and you sprinkle it on the food, does the food need to be hot? Does it need to be cold? Are there any restrictions about what kind of food? So there are a number of dosing guidelines that kind of relate back to the sort of social indications and kind of patient selection issues and even safety. And so there's sort of best practices recommendations. In general, the, the vehicle food, to answer your question, should be either cold or room temperature, no warmer than room temperature. So you don't want to put in something super hot and typically a relatively small amount two to three tablespoons, maybe a quarter cup. I hear from some patients that say a quarter cup of applesauce or pudding does better to sort of hide the taste or texture. Again, these are kids having to swallow the thing they're allergic to. Not surprisingly, that is sometimes tough to do, particularly if the kids can taste what it is. And again, that's not surprising. 
So you don't want to mix it into a huge amount where they have to eat like a whole bowl of ice cream to make sure that the dose got in, right? It should be a relatively small amount so that you can know for sure, okay, the whole dose was taken. But you want to put it in enough so that the flavor is somewhat masked and kind of semi-solid, you know, cold or room temperature food. The dose should be always taken on a full stomach. And that's a key dosing rule. I have kind of three main rules with families. There are others, but there's three big ones. The first is separate and apart from the vehicle food that you're mixing it in, there should be food in the stomach. So I I tend to have people dose around mealtimes or at the very least after a big heavy snack. So eat something, then dose. Dosing on an empty stomach causes reactions. The second thing is after taking a dose, patients need to have some downtime, quiet time. They should not exercise after dosing. And I use the term exercise here pretty loosely, not just vigorous cardiovascular exercise, like riding a bike or playing basketball, but even things that would be considered strenuous, like, you know, cleaning activities around the house, lifting things and putting them on shelves, things that kind of increase your heart rate after you dose can cause a dosing reaction. And those should be avoided for two to three hours. So this is a really important consideration, especially in older kids who may have extramural activities figuring out when you can get something in their stomach, you can dose them, and then they can have some downtime after school and before they go to bed, that can be somewhat of a challenge. Sometimes you can dose in the morning, but you have to have these kind of time requirements around the dose. And then the third one is never take a dose when you're sick, particularly if there's a fever, even if there's not a fever, even just kind of a a mild runny nose, a cold can trigger a reaction to a dose that was previously tolerated because the immune system sort of turns on to fight that infection, that can change the way it sort of handles a dose. So those are sort of the three cardinal rules of dosing. And again, you know, families, because they're managing this at home, kind of have to follow these sort of dosing instructions. And there are others, you shouldn't take ibuprofen. Uh, there, there are some, some warnings around dosing at the time of a menstrual period, et cetera. Uh, and your, your provider can go through all these with you. But what we've learned is that a lot of the cases of anaphylaxis or bigger safety concerns with OIT have to do with one or more of these conditions not being met, right? So if you're sick and you give a dose of ibuprofen and then you take a dose the same day, you're going to have trouble. And so a lot of the things that have been reported in trials were were related to some of these environmental factors that we really want to try to control in the dosing. Thank you for bringing such clarity about your three rules and what this involves. And I do have another question, though. So when parents need to start updosing their child, do they just give them more of those capsules or are there more nuanced doses? So in the Palforzia program, it's all perfectly well spelled out. One of the real advantages of a product like this is that Everybody gets treated the same way. It's all very clear. You start on the first day. There are the capsules that are required to take you from one five hundredth of a peanut, which is half a milligram of peanut protein, all the way up to six milligrams. There's five doses the first day. And this is all, you know, again, there's no weighing or measuring or guessing or anything. It's all, you just, it's capsule one, capsule two, capsule three, and so on. But you can think of it like the provider essentially writes a prescription. Either the local institutional pharmacy will handle the medication or they can use a specialty pharmacy. And the dose level kit is then dispensed. And so the first dose level kit is three milligrams. So for there's 14 days worth of a three milligram dose in capsules that gets shipped 
to the family's home or they may ship it to the office for the office to hand it to the family. And they take those at home and they obviously need to stay in close touch with the practice if there are things, that, if they have any questions or if there are any symptoms, if they have any you know, issues with dosing and they'll have a, an appointment to come back in roughly two weeks, at which time the practice will then test the six milligram dose of palforzia. And if the six milligram dose goes well, then they write another prescription and you get a six milligram kit and you take the six milligram kit for two weeks and then you come back. And if that goes well, we try 12 milligrams. In the, so every time we adjust that dose, we do it in the office. And if it goes well, then we write the prescription for the new kit. The kit gets shipped. The, kit, the family gets it. All of this is billable to insurance in virtually all cases. Right now, focused on, on private insurers. You know, my clinic in Atlanta is about 50% Medicaid. And I'm eager to find out how this medication is going to be covered by Medicaid. And that's obviously, you know, different payers are going to come up with different rules for this stuff because it's all brand new. They've, they've never had to think about how do we make available an FDA indicated treatment for food allergy because there's never been one before. And so part of what we're also doing on the kind of the sort of the researchers in the field and patient advocates and, and so on is to try to convince these insurers like, hey, this is really important. This is something you should cover. And I would say that most of them have been pretty receptive to this idea that this is they, they understand that food allergy is a life threatening condition and their patients have really not had good options up until now and that these are are breakthrough treatments that really can change lives. And so they've been really receptive to that. No, there's no playbook for it because this is not like approving the 17th you know, asthma inhaler where there's a t clear precedent. This is like totally new. That cost to the system, cost to individual patients, how does that change by you know, payer? What type of insurance you have? How does that affect people that are underinsured or uninsured? I mean, these are all key questions that to get worked out. There are apparently robust patient assistance programs that are built into this program. I have not used them yet, so I don't know exactly how well they perform, but I think the company is has sort of publicly stated we're committed to trying to get as many people on this treatment if they want it. But again, how that relates to out-of-pocket costs for families is really an important issue, both in the case of palforzia and for those seeking OIT treatment in an office outside the scope of the approved product. My son's 21 and he was diagnosed with food allergies at age two. And I never mm. thought in a million years I'd be having this kind of conversation with anybody. Yeah, there's been a lot of really, I would say, really thoughtful engineering, so to speak, that has taken into account patient needs and patient preferences to try to make this as easy as possible for families. Because it is, I mean, it is a big commitment. And we talked about this in terms of time and dosing at home and keeping kids relatively calm. How do you keep a four-year-old calm after you dose them? I mean, there, there's a lot that goes into it, but the idea is to try to make it as easy for families as, as you can. And it's great to reflect on that comment that you just made. You know, in your own personal experience, you'd never thought you'd be having this conversation. I'm a researcher. I spend 80% of my time doing research. I see patients two afternoons a week in clinic, and I love seeing patients. What makes me a doctor, I choose to spend most of my time doing research. There are obvious gaps in the field. We need to fill them. The only way we get to a better tomorrow is with research. Otherwise, we just keep doing the same thing we're doing every day. And it's really the research that has made that possible so that you can sit here 19 years later and there's an FDA-approved treatment for food allergy. Huge holds classes of stakeholders deserve credit for getting us to this point from NIH funding research to the patient advocates that have really pushed them on it 
to the, all the participants that have been in studies, so many people to think about and thank for this. But it's really, we're at the, the infancy, the first, but not nearly the last time this is going to happen. So it's a tremendously exciting time to be in the field. And what you get to see firsthand up front, how it just can change people's lives. And I've had that experience many times over the last 10 years working with this stuff. But it's not a cure. It is still, it causes reactions. It can be somewhat difficult to use at times. So it's a first step forward. But the thing that's really cool for me to see is what it's done to the whole field to say, wait a minute, this is actually a real thing now. We, we have millions of people that are affected. They have never historically had great options. This is a life-threatening condition. And now there's a pathway to get new medicines to them. And what you're seeing now is different sponsors, different companies, different funding agencies, people that have not historically paid a lot of attention maybe to food allergy now saying like, oh, wait, this is interesting. There's there are millions of people affected. What can we offer? What can we do? What kind of technology can we bring forward to try to help these patients? And so you're seeing this explosion in research activity. There's all these new treatment candidates that are being studied. People are starting to figure out how to start to manipulate the, the microbiome in the intestine. They're targeting very specific immune pathways with these antibodies that have been very effective for patients with arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease. And how does that apply to food allergy? You know, this conversation, if you have me back in five years, it's going to be totally different. And five years again after that. And that's the part that's really exciting to me because, you know, we're just at the cusp of the first change, but it's going to accelerate and get very interesting quite soon. You know, Dr. Vickery, when you said these are exciting times, I think it's an understatement. To me, these are just amazing times in terms of research and all of the good work that you're doing and your colleagues are doing. So I do want to thank you for that. That is incredible. Now, is there anything else you'd like to add today that you think our listeners should know? Well, I I just, I would like to leave people with that impression. We are it's a moment to celebrate that we have, it's kind of a, a strange thing to say in the, in the middle of a pandemic, but to remind folks because of the convergence of these two things, we look forward to, uh, are hopeful about a future in which we gain control of the virus and things start to settle back down again and we can welcome patients into our clinic. And when that happens, food allergy will still be a huge issue and it still is now even in the pandemic. We look forward to things returning to some semblance of normal. And when that happens, we'll be able to start offering patients treatments for their food allergy and their options will only increase over time. The Bioskin patch that DBV has been testing for nut allergy is being evaluated by the FDA now and hopefully may become the second FDA approved treatment. As I mentioned, there's all these new things that are being tested, not just for peanut, but for other foods, egg, milk, multiple food allergens all at once. The future looks really bright for patients living with food allergy. Obviously, progress can't come fast enough. I mean, we're, you know, this is the thing that motivates us all each morning to get up and lace them up and and get out there. But I think truly an exciting time for the field. I just want to thank you for all your work, drawing attention to food allergy and increasing awareness, advocating for the community because those kinds of activities are critically important and for doing your part to inform and educate and and get people up to speed on the latest and greatest until things 
settle down a little bit. I wish everybody health, safety, sanity, hang in there. We're all getting through this together one day at a time. You know, we look forward to being able to kind of welcome everybody back to clinic and, and keep this rolling. Thank you, Dr. Vickery, for educating us on the basics of OIT, palforzia, but most of all, for your beautiful message of hope for families with food allergies. There is so much out there, and we all appreciate, again, your words of wisdom, your time. We hope to have you back on the show sooner than five years from now to give us an update and keep us in the loop. But thank you again for your time, and we look forward to speaking to you again. Well, Caroline, I'd love to come back anytime. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the invitation. I really enjoyed our conversation and take care, okay? Thank you all for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, share, and review our podcast and be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Apple Podcast, iTunes, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.